Now, I know you know this, and I know this is not going to shock you, but there are some people who don't like the Bible, who make it their life mission to discredit it as the writings of ancient goat herders. And who wants to hear from an old goat herder anyway, right? But I assure you that although some of the biblical writers were goat herders, Abraham, uh, Moses was a goat herder for a while, but he was also raised in the schools of Egypt. And, and even though some are that, the Bible was written by 35 different individuals, surprisingly not all of them goat herders. It's not one book. This is a common misunderstanding people have. This is a library of 66 different books written over 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents. And they have one theme, the whole book from Genesis to Revelation. And the theme that it has is the promises, the arrival, the work, the return of the Messiah, who the Bible reveals to be Jesus Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah. The Bible reveals that to be Jesus. All the way from Genesis chapter 3, where there's a promise that one of the descendants of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, but he is going to bruise his heel. That's a prophecy of the crucifixion. He will die, but he will defeat the devil by doing so. And to Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis, way back in Genesis, one of your descendants is going to bless all nations, the Bible says. That's way back in Genesis. And when you make your way through, it's all about the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, the promises of the Messiah, and men who pop up that you might think could be the Messiah, but end up not being that. Like Abraham, could Abraham be the Messiah? No, Abraham messed up. Can David be the Messiah? No, no, David messed up. Can, you know, that, we see that. Can Daniel be the Messiah? Well, he did pretty good his whole life, but he's not. And so those kind of things happen throughout. Now, there are benefits to Scripture, and I want to start with that. Before we talk about how we get our Bible, I want to talk about what the Bible says about itself and the benefits you get from it. In Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus is preaching a message, and a woman cries out from the crowd, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that fed you. So she's talking about Mary, who had probably the greatest ministry out of anybody ever in all time of being the one chosen to give birth to the Messiah, the Son of God, who is God with us. And, she, and the Bible says, and Gabriel said to her, blessed are you among women. And it says she contemplated what kind of a, of a greeting is that? And then she sings a song in the book of Luke. And when you read the song that Mary sings, you realize that God didn't just choose Mary randomly. He chose her because she was a young woman or a teenager in those days who loved God, who knew the word of God, who had a relationship with God. And Mary says in her song that she needs a savior. So even though there are people who will venerate Mary to the place of sinlessness, she doesn't do it. She says, I rejoice in my Savior. She knows she needs a Savior. She knows the Word of God well. So we know she's blessed. And a lot of women would say, I would have loved to have been chosen by God to do that. 
Now here's Jesus' response to this woman crying this out from the crowd. But Jesus said more than that. So I agree with you. She's blessed. But more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's a pretty amazing promise. That there's a blessing if you hear God's word and you keep it. The Bible says the two greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do these two, then you will fulfill all of the law and the prophets. Pretty amazing statement, right? Hey, if I just love God and love people, then I'm doing what God wants me to do. I can't go wrong if I do just those two things, love God and love people. And that's a pretty incredible message that sums up the entirety of the Bible. That's the summary of the entire word of God. And you can bring a blessing into your life by learning it, reading it, studying it, reading it in context, uh, reading books about it, learning more about it. You're bringing a blessing into your life. Now, First uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tell us how we get the scriptures. It says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. God inspired the authors. I told you that there were some 35 authors. Some believe as many as 40. They were inspired by God. Now, when I say inspired, I don't mean like a magazine article is inspired. Some people say, I read this article, it was inspired. Or I, or I watched... E.T., it was inspired. Steven Spielberg's a genius, you know. Um, okay, it was a good movie. It was inspired in a way because he's inspired a lot of things that he does, but he's not inspired by God. God inspired the men who wrote the Bible. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean he took them over. It doesn't mean that it was like, I am now in a trance writing God's word down. You can hear their personalities you can see certain uh, ways in which they use or misuse grammar. You can, you can tell the different styles between Peter and, and Paul when you're reading through the Bible. So God didn't do that. God moved on their hearts to write down what was true, but they wrote it in their own personalities, in their own styles, with their own mistakes. He didn't stop them from making a mistake. Like, you know... I'm not, the, I'm not the best speller in the world. And I, I'm, so, I'm married to a woman who is a writer and, and, a, uh, uh, and an, an editor. And so I get to give her my stuff and then she edits for me. It's like a perfect match that God brought together. Absolutely perfect. Um, so I wouldn't have spelled everything correctly. Later on, my wife would have laughed at some of the things that I wrote down. Because sometimes it'll give you words that you misspelled and you click on it to replace it, and it replaces it with a silly word, and then you read it and you go, wow, that's not what I want to say. I don't want to say that at all. All right, so he inspired it. It's inspired by God. It's profitable for doctrine. That means truth. For reproof means evidence. This is, this is doctrine. It's the truth. It is evidence for what we believe, for correction, so that we're doing things wrong. We need to be corrected. Uh, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's a pretty good statement there. Psalms 12, 6 and 7 tells us that God is going to preserve his word throughout the generations. This is a promise that God gives us that I am going to take my word and preserve it throughout the generations. 
This is Psalms 12, 6 and 7. The word of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle of the law will be done away with until it is fulfilled. Jesus said that none, uh, the Bible says, none of the word of God is going to come back unfulfilled. And the Bible truly is an amazing book. It is, it is amazing when you read it in context, you realize that although we call it the word of God, that God's not the only one who speaks in it, right? There are things that are said, Satan is quoted in the word of God. Ahab, one of the most evil kings, is quoted in the word of God. You've got people saying things that God would never say. And so people misuse that. They, they say the Bible says this, and you're going to believe a God who says that when you go back to context and you go, God didn't say that. That was somebody else that said that. And if we have time today, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But I do want to talk about how we got our Bible. Because we, we didn't get it by God suddenly lowering it from heaven with a light on it and ribbons hanging from it. Whoa! The Word of God. And if we think about it, we realize that because I've got here in my notes a New King James Version and I've got an ESV version that I carry with me that I can have two different versions to look up and contrast what they say. And they're different in places. So we know that we got the Bible in an earthy way. What do I mean by an earthy way? That God didn't supernaturally take over the people to write down what was said. They wrote it down. They wrote it in their personalities and their styles. And then on top of that, people began to copy it. And in the Old Testament, it was professionals copying it, scribes. These are men that their job was to copy. Some scribes were good and some scribes were bad. This is really funny and we don't talk about it much. Some scribes have to continually go back and correct their spelling. We used to say that they count up all the letters and then they destroy it if it isn't exactly right. Well, that's not true. They, they save their work. They're like, I worked on this for, for five months. I'm not destroying it. They'll, they'll draw lines over to the margin and write in a word they left out. They make corrections. They reread it and make corrections. And the, the, the manuscripts, a manuscript is written, okay? Something's typed out or copied that's not a manuscript. A manuscript is written. So the manuscripts of the Old Testament are of high quality. The manuscripts of the New Testament are of less high quality because they were written by regular Christians. These were people that, that got a hold of a copy of the book of Matthew and said, I want my own copy. And so they wrote their own copy of the book of Matthew. Or it was maybe someone like Irenaeus or Polycarp who would write a copy of the book of Matthew for people. And then other people would write from that. And so they had a copy of Matthew from Irenaeus or from Polycarp or from these early church fathers and what they wrote. So that we have 5,000 today, 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, which is huge. That's a lot of manuscripts. But they're all different. They all make mistakes. They all vary from one another. So God was not somehow taking over each person making a copy to make sure they didn't make any mistakes. Think about what God would have to do to do that. Every person would be like, 
in a trance then. I'm writing a copy of Matthew. No, if they were bad spellers, they spelled bad. If they were bad copiers, they copy bad. If they were tone, uh, prone to leave out words, they left out words. Sometimes they added to it. And they weren't thinking they were adding to the word of God, but this is their own personal copy. So if they want to write in there, when they come to the name of Jesus, but they feel like, I just want to give him more respect. So they write Lord Jesus in front of it. They've just done that in their own copy. They're not trying to deceive anyone. They're writing, and sometimes they write things about God, like there's a statement in 1 John, I think it's 1 John, that says, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one. And it ended up in some text for a while. This was just something somebody wrote in there. They wrote about God, and then they kind of wrote, maybe even off onto the side. And later on, it got put into the text. But they wrote, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one. They weren't deceptive. They were just writing what the church was teaching in their own copy. So they would put notes inside of manuscripts. So how do we tell when we got all these 5,000 manuscripts and none of them are the same? Someone might say, there are thousands of differences between the manuscripts. And I would correct them. There are hundreds of thousands of differences between the 5,000 manuscripts. Why? Because not only were they copied by people, but then people were taking copies and copying them. So they were copying some of the mistakes that were made. So there may be, you know, a, a hundred uh, mistakes in one tree. You can make a tree out of it. And this is what textual critics do. They make a tree out of it. And if that mistake is in a hundred of them and there's a thousand in that manuscript, which might seem like a lot, but not if there's spelling mistakes or words transposed, those kind of things, because you can easily kick those out. You can easily go, those don't mean anything. You end up with 100,000 from one set of manuscripts. So there's a large number of them. Now, critics will use that against college students. This is one of the reasons I say, if I can give one Bible study to high schoolers and junior high Christians, this would be it. Because uh, professors are going to go, how can you trust a Bible that has all of those differences in its manuscripts? But he's being dishonest. Or he's ignorant. And I'll choose that he's being dishonest. Because I think if he's a professor and he's teaching a New Testament survey class, that he's going to know what I'm going to tell you now. He knows this. But he's being dishonest to destroy the faith of kids. And it irks me. You can kind of tell that it does. Because there is something called textual criticism. This is a science there are people that go to school to become a textual critic. And they use it not only in manuscripts from the Bible, but manuscripts, any manuscripts. They use it from manuscripts from Africa, from in Coptic, which is uh, an, uh, an African language. They use it from manuscripts that are in, 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 just think of any language that you have old manuscripts. Think of Greek and, and Aristotle. How many manuscripts are there there? So you have to have textual critics who can look at the manuscripts, see the differences, and be able to come back and give you a reliable copy of what Aristotle said. And when people quote Aristotle, they don't ever go, well, let me give you Aristotle's quote, but you realize there are hundreds of thousands of mistakes in Aristotle's manuscripts. They don't ever do that. Why? Because textual critics are good at getting back to what the original has to say. Think about it this way. So there's a few hundred people in here. 
maybe, maybe a thousand. And we're all gonna write, we're all gonna write a manuscript. So we pass out a pen and a paper to you guys, and I'm gonna talk for five minutes. Now I'm gonna talk by normal speed, so I talk fast. But you're gonna have to write the manuscript. Every one of you is gonna write a manuscript, because remember, a manuscript could be today. If you write something out, that's a manuscript. So you're all gonna write a manuscript. And then we're gonna gather them together. And we're gonna compare them. Some of you guys are gonna write really good manuscripts. Like my wives, hers would be perfect. There, I, I, there, probably, there wouldn't be a mistake in there. Because she's so good at what she does and she's done this for so long that she's good at it. Some of you guys, it would be like, we would see it and go, wow. Now a good manuscript would probably have three or four or five mistakes in it, in a five minute speech. You might be going quickly and misspell a word that you wouldn't normally do, or you might, you know, inverse words, or you might get behind a little bit and then have to remember what I said and write it down really quick. And so you write it down slightly different. Uh, others of you, oh, others of you, your manuscripts would not be good at all because <laughs> you can't spell and you don't know grammar. And, and when you started writing, you fell behind and you just drew a line in some places because I can't keep up. And, and we would get your manuscript to go, that's not a good manuscript. Now, let's just say from those manuscripts that you guys wrote, we had another 5,000 people compile them and make their own manuscripts from that. Now, can we take those 5,000 manuscripts that were written one generation away from the original and can we get back close to what I said? We could get, this is what textual critics do. They could get very close. First of all, they would compile the better manuscripts and go, we can trust these more. And these bad ones here, we'll, we may be able to learn something from them, but we're not going to give them a lot of credence. And there would be ones that would be in the middle. And you would be able to immediately kick out, with 5,000 manuscripts written from your man, 1,000 manuscripts, then you would have, you would have tens of thousands of, of variants. But we'd be able to kick out most of them. Because we go, that's a misspelling, that's a misspelling, that's a misspelling. That's, that's transverse words. That's a different word. He didn't use that word. We know that because the really good ones, all, 10 of them agree. This one doesn't agree. So we know that it's right. So you would be able to remove the vast majority of the variants as being uh, small, insignificant, that don't change anything at all. That's what we find among the, the manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, there are some significant variants where you find something that is different in one set of manuscripts and in another set, and they're both good manuscripts and you have to make a decision now. Is this, was this in the original or not? And these are scholars making that decision. So sometimes scholars will put in the variant, like the New King James or the King James puts in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. The NIV, the ESV don't put it in there. Now the King James people who like the King James will go, well, the NIV is subtracting things from the Bible but they're not. Let's just be honest. It's scholars who are going, the majority of the manuscripts and the better manuscripts don't have that in there. So let's take it out and let's put a footnote in our Bible. No one's being deceptive to you. In your study Bible, there are footnotes almost on every page that will tell you the differences in the different groups of manuscripts. And you can start to learn, what does M mean? What does NU mean? You can start to look, you can just look it up on the internet and look at what these different little, you know, phrases are for the, what types of manuscripts they are and, and what they've been written on. So no one's trying to deceive you. 
And when you learn that there's a significant variant, now I found one of those significant variants when I was 16. I'd been told as a Christian that the word of God is inerrant. Now what I, what I thought inerrant was that there was absolutely no mistakes. That it was all, just all agreed. It was, it was inerrant. If you're right, that's what inerrant means. So I'm reading through the Bible as a 16-year-old, 17 maybe, and I come across the passage in Chronicles where it says, and I can't remember the number, like 76,000 men were killed. And I remember when I was in Kings, it was a different number. So I went to Kings and it said 67,000 were killed. Now, obviously, a scribe transposed the numbers. Obviously. That now, that doesn't surprise me. That doesn't bother me. That doesn't make me think that the Bible's not inerrant or infallible. I realize it came in a very earthly way. And this may be a little shocking to you. You might be hearing this for the first time and going, I don't know if I like this teaching or not. I don't, but just give it time. It's going to soak in and you're going to get how we got our Bible and why you can trust it. And I'm going to give you some suggestions if you want to do more reading on it as to why it's, it is trustworthy. Um, but I went to my pastor and I said, look, it says here 67,000, it says here 76,000, it's the same battle. He looked at it, here's what he told me. It's, it's different battles. Rather than being honest, and maybe, maybe he didn't know. I don't know. This was a, a Methodist pastor. I'm sure he'd been to seminary. I'm sure he knew how we got our Bible. But he tells me, this is, is different accounts. Well, I go home and, and I'm looking at the accounts and they're the same account. This caused a crisis in my faith. I actually put the Bible away for a while. I didn't know what to do with it. I had no answers because nobody had told me that some manuscripts say 67 and some manuscripts say 76. And that the King James Bible particularly has variants in it that are like that because they come from one manuscript. They take one manuscript from, I don't know, four or 500 years ago, maybe a little longer than that, and they, 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 have, they bring the New Testament to you. Now, kudos to them for not correcting it. They're gonna use one manuscript and they go to 67 and 76, instead of going, you know what, we better correct this or people are going to be confused, they leave it alone. That talks of their integrity when they did it. But it's not a good idea to use one manuscript to make your Bible. Now, the King James Bible is a good Bible. The compiling of the manuscripts that it was taken from was a good compiling of manuscripts. It's not, it's not really fair to say one manuscript because they compiled a bunch of them to make the manuscript. But it is one manuscript from each one. And it's good. The New King James, I use it. It's from the same, I think it's the Texas Receptus. It's from the same group. It's a, it's a good Bible. But it does have variants in it. And it has some significant variants in it. And that shouldn't shake our faith because we realize how it was made. In order for there to be no variants, it would mean every copy of every manuscript would have to be the same. And what would that mean? What would it mean if they were all identical? We have 5,000 manuscripts of the Greek copied by people and they're all identical. Some people might go, well, that would mean God moved supernaturally on every one of those writers and we would be more confident about it. Maybe you feel that way, but I'll tell you who wouldn't feel that way. Textual critics. They would reject it. They would say there are no differences. And since there are no differences, these were not honestly written by different people because when different people write them, there are differences. Here's the same thing that happens with detectives. Not because I was ever a detective, because I wasn't. 
But there's a, a guy by the name of Jay Warner Wallace who was a cold case detective. He was on Dateline and a lot of different shows for some of the, 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 the crimes he solved. He, as a non-Christian, began to read the New Testament and became struck with how true the, the differences are. Because when you have eyewitnesses, and, and he talks about this, you can look up J. Warner Wallace on YouTube if you want to and type in eyewitnesses, J. Warner Wallace, and he'll give you the explanations on this. Um, when, when, when you have two different people from, uh, that see crime, they're going to give you differences. But they are compatible. And sometimes a guy might go, they, they might go, well, he had a gun. Well, what kind of gun did he have? Well, he had a Glock. He had a 40 caliber Glock. And the woman goes, he had a gun. What kind of gun? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And so the, the, the guy said, what kind of shirt did he have on? I don't know. A, a dark T-shirt. And the guy goes, it wasn't a dark T-shirt. It was a polo shirt. It had a couple buttons on it. Had a little pocket on there, a little alligator on the thing here. So, because she's noticing that, right? And so if there's not differences, then there's been collusion. And they throw it out. So if all of our manuscripts were the same, they would assume collusion and they would throw it out. We do not want the, we want the scientists that do this same kind of thing with Aristotle and Homer and Athanasius and Irenaeus and uh, uh, Philo and Josephus. Anybody in ancient history, textual critics do their job, not just the Bible. We don't want the Bible being treated differently than any other book. Now, let me give you a quote from an, an interesting quote. This is from Dr. Um, Frank Turek, and it's on his webpage. And he wrote a blog where he talked about a book that uh, Bruce Metzger, it's M-E-T-Z-G-E-R, hard name to say, Bruce Metzger, Metzger and, and he was a really good New Testament scholar in the 20th century. Wrote, he wrote a book called text of the New Testament, and I think it was in the 60s. But over time, more manuscripts were discovered, and it found that there were inaccuracies in there. So he asked another New Testament scholar to help him reorganize it and put out a new edition. Now, this happens periodically. Evidence that demands a verdict. Sean, Sean McDowell came to his dad, Josh McDowell, and said, Dad, some of the things you said in here are not right, and they're outdated. Let's do a new edition. And so if you're going to read evidence that demands a verdict, you want to do the one with Sean McDowell and Josh McDowell because they've updated it. The other one was written in the 70s. A lot of things have changed, and there were some things that they found that just weren't accurate, so they redid it, the same thing that they did here. Now, Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar, but he's a Christian critic. So when he helped him rewrite this, now you've got a Christian critic who was looking over things. And here's what Frank Turek says that Ehrman and Metzer wrote. He said, Ehrman and Metzer state in the book that we have a high degree of confidence that we can reconstruct the original text of the New Testament. That's scholars, and that is a critical scholar. We can have a high degree of confidence that we can reconstruct the New Testament. The text that the Bible we use because of the abundance of textual evidence that we have to compare. In other words, more manuscripts and more variants is good. It's not bad because now you can compare and contrast more of them. 
it says the variants are largely minor. I already told you that spelling, transposed words and such, mis misspelled words, um, which is what spelling is. The variants are largely minor and don't obscure our ability to construct an accurate text. The fourth edition of the work was published in 2005. Now that ought to give you great confidence that we got the word of God in an earthy way, that we got the word of God in a way that they bring you Aristotle, they bring you anybody else that's written out there, and then we can trust what's in the Bible. Now I've only got a couple seconds left, so I want to cover two things quickly. There are people who misuse the Bible. Again, that's going to shock you. And especially in TikTok. So in TikTok, there are, there's, there's people who will say something and then they'll go, you want to serve a God who says that? Or, or one TikTok said, in Ecclesiastes, the Bible says there's nothing good under the sun. And in Genesis, it says, God created the world and said it's good. You want to follow a God who can't decide whether it's good or not? That's his little TikTok. And it's effective. Because people hear it and go, yeah. And especially when you hear one after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. And pretty soon you're like, I can't trust the Bible at all. However, if you look at each one of them, you go, Ecclesiastes is a, is a literary genre of wisdom literature. He's trying to tell us living for the world is not worth anything. Living for God is. There's a historical element to Genesis. Plus, there's a fall after Genesis. It was good, but then it fell, and now there's nothing good under the sun. So there's a couple ways to go at it. But once you read it in context, you go, there's not a problem. Now, I'm going to give you one that's a little rough on Mother's Day, okay? Sorry, mothers, to do this to you on Mother's Day. But someone said this to me one time, so I want to give it to you. They said to me, how can you serve a God who said, happy are those who dash your baby against a rock? And I'm like, now I've taught all the way through the Bible. And I didn't remember that. And I was like, does the Bible say that? He goes, yeah. God said, happy are those who dash a baby against a rock. Now, if, if God said that in the Bible, would that bother you? Come on, be honest. Would it bother you? Yeah, it bothered me too. I, I would have to rethink things. Well, what kind of God would say, happy are those who dash your babies against the rocks? Yeah, we got problems. However, when you go to the text, you find out a couple of really interesting things. And this is Psalms uh, 37. And I don't have time to read all of it now, but it's Psalms 37. You can read it later on. I just want to read you the first couple of verses that will help you to get figured out what's going on here. So here's what it says in Psalms 37, 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. These are captives that have been taken from Jerusalem by Babylonian soldiers and brought by the waters of Babylon where they're going to live now. And they sat down and they wept. When we remembered Zion and the willows there. We hung our, our lairs. For there are captors. Okay, they're weeping because they're now in Babylon, away from Israel, of Jerusalem. Our captors required us a song. So the Babylonian captors saw them weeping and said, you guys sing us a song. And our tormentors, mirth. They said, you sing us a song and you'll be happy about it. So they're mistreating these captive slaves, telling them to sing them songs and sing a song of Zion, it says. And it says, we shall sing to the Lord in a foreign land. They're asking the question. 
We're going to sing to our God in a foreign land. Now, when the Babylonian soldiers took over Israel, and this is under Nebuchadnezzar, they murdered, pillaged, raped. They murdered most of the men. Daniel was a young man who was taken because he was smart, who was taken to be in the king's court. Uh, they killed babies. They would kill babies. A ancient armies killed babies. They didn't care for the babies. They wanted the women. And they kidnapped the women. So these are, all, these, these are probably women, and they've already been through the ringer as slaves in Babylon right now. Now here's what they go to the end. When they get to the end, here's what they say. So I'm going to skip a few verses. You can go read them later. Psalms 137, okay? Here's what they say. And this is um, the New English version, ESV, okay? That's the Bible I have here I'm reading from. Probably underneath us is um, New King James. Uh, so in verse 8 it says, O daughter of Babylon. So they're women, probably. And now they're going to curse the daughters of Babylon. O daughters of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. You guys, the same thing's going to happen to you. Blessed or happy shall be who he repays you. So they look at the women of Babylon and they say, doomed are you and blessed is the person that takes you captive. Now, is that right that these women said that to the women of Babylon? No. Later on, we're told to pray for our enemies. Bless those who curse you. It isn't right. But do we understand that these women that have been taken captive and probably raped and had their children killed would say such a thing when they see a woman of Babylon? We, we can understand it, right? Because of what they're in. What's their next statement to these women of Babylon? They're looking at women of Babylon. They say, happy are those who repay you what we've been given. Then they say, blessed shall be he, he who takes your, uh, your little ones and dashes them against a rock. Now, is that right that the captive women of Israel say to a Babylonian woman, happy be the one who dashes your baby against a rock? But when we realize that they've had their babies dashed against a rock, all of a sudden we have some understanding. I'm not saying they're right. I think they're wrong. But this isn't God saying it. So you see the mistake that was made when the guy told me it? God said, happy are the ones who smash your babies against a rock. And when you go and read it in context, you go, God didn't say that. Women who were taken captive said it. And this is the kind of dishonesty that you find with critics that will criticize the Bible. So I will tell you, when you hear things like that, when you see them scrolling up on TikTok, okay, and you see one after another that are going through this, don't write off the Bible. Go take one of them and look it up and see if it's what he's saying it is. Because every one of them, this is the same thing when someone barrages you with a bunch of questions. They, they hit you with a bunch of critical things about the Bible. You think the Bible's true? What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? Here's what I do. Let's go to just one of them. Just give me one of them. Give me the one you think is the most egregious. And then I go there and read them what it is. And it's nowhere near as egregious as what they say it is. They're just barraging you with so much information that you pretty soon you think, well, the Bible must be horrible. It's got all this stuff in it. Just get it back down to one and go and check it out. And do another one and go and check it out. Read it in context. And you're going to find, like we just did, that there's an answer when they hit these with, with so much information. This is a tactic that people will use in debating. It's a debating tactic. If I'm debating someone and I all of a sudden can rapid fire a bunch of questions at him that make his his position look ridiculous, he can't answer all of those questions. I've given him too many. 
and I made them too fast and I'm making my point. What's the counter to that when you're, when you're, when you're debating? What's the counter to that? You go, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's too much information. We can't cover all of it. Give me one of them. What is, give me one of them. You choose it. You let me know what you think is, is uh, egregious and then it'll give you one of them and then you deal with the one of them. And then when you do that, you go, this can be done with all of them. So that's the tactic. So you see this on YouTube. The internet is infamous for, for this kind of stuff. You see it all over the place. You, uh, there, there are people that get most of their information from YouTube and that's a problem if you don't check it out. Know your source and where you're getting it from. There's good stuff on YouTube. There's also very bad stuff on YouTube. There's good that will give you good information and there's also bad. I'm out of time. I wish I had more, but I'm done. So stand with me, would you, and let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can take time to consider your word and, and how we got it and what inerrancy means. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would really have an understanding with it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.